This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 209 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Amy Severson, a fellow anti-diet dietitian and activist. We talk about why intuitive eating is not a weight loss plan, her experiences as a self-described fat dietitian, how she moved from the weight management paradigm to the health at every size paradigm, the social justice side of haze and intuitive eating, how social media can be both helpful and harmful in recovering from diet culture, and so much more. It's a great conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener with initial A who writes, Hi, Christy. I've been following you on Instagram for a while, and I'm super excited to have joined your mailing list. I'm coming to you with an odd issue, which is that I have zero physical hunger signals. I still eat, usually three meals a day plus snacks because I like how food tastes, but I don't eat from a place of physiological hunger. It's weird. I haven't had an actual hunger pang or empty stomach feeling since August of 2015. I was training for a marathon at the time, not sure if that had something to do with it. I think I could go an entire day or two without feeling hungry. The problem is I've never actually gone that long. I lost a significant amount of weight due to severe restriction twice in my life, so I have a very strong anti-restriction relationship and get very nervous about not eating for long periods of time. These two periods in my life were in 1999 when I was 15 and throughout graduate school in 2011 and 2012. I was never diagnosed as having an eating disorder at either of those two periods in my life, but I had all the telltale signs, weight below what I think is my set point, lost my period, counted and measured every single thing I put in my mouth, etc., I'm 100% committed to a lifelong anti-diet approach, as hard as that is some days. I feel so disconnected from my body, though, given that I don't have hunger cues to guide me during this process. I've had a number of blood tests taken and physicals done over the past few years, by the way, and in all cases, I'm told I'm very healthy. Doctors seem fully unconcerned about my lack of hunger signals, which surprised me at first. Now I realize that given that I'm a quote-unquote healthy weight, they just don't see it as cause for alarm. I would love to get to the bottom of this somehow, though. Do you have any patience with this issue? Is this something you could offer advice about? So thanks, A, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. 
So yeah, I first of all want to send you so much compassion because it sounds like you've been through a lot in your life and your relationship with food. And you've definitely had some seriously disordered eating during those periods in your life. And it sounds like you've come a long way in your recovery since then in the sense that you really want to do right by yourself now and not restrict and deprive yourself, which is awesome. So it sounds like great self-care that you have this, like you said, strong anti-restriction relationship with food. And that's really so common and so understandable when you've gone through periods of famine, which is really what it is, right? When you've deprived yourself through dieting and disordered eating, it's like your body is going through a famine. Your body can't tell the difference between quote-unquote self-imposed famine and famine that happens for external reasons. It just knows that it's deprived and starving and in danger. And so your body reacts to that, right? And it's really great that your conscious mind is not putting your body through that anymore, is trying to help you not restrict again. But it also sounds from your question like you still do have a bit of a restrictive mindset in some ways. There's this diet mentality there that I think, you know, all of us have to some degree and have to really work to root out. And that stems from internalized diet culture beliefs from growing up in this oppressive culture, which is diet culture that sucks all of us in from such a young age. So the things that are standing out to me in your question, the the biggest one is the sentence where you say, the problem is I've never actually gone that long. That really jumped out to me as being emblematic of the diet mentality. I think what you're saying in that sentence is that you could go a couple days without feeling hungry, but you've never actually gone that long without eating, right? And why on earth would you want to do that? Why would you ever want to go a couple days without eating? That's not okay. The only reason you would want to is diet mentality, right? Is lingering eating disorder beliefs that tell you you quote unquote should go that long without eating, which is just complete BS, right? No one should go long periods of time without eating, whether or not they, quote unquote, feel hungry at the physiological level. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute because I have a hunch that you actually are getting some hunger signals that you just are not recognizing. But regardless, you deserve to eat no matter what. You deserve to eat whether or not you have hunger cues. You deserve to eat for any reason whatsoever. You deserve to eat simply because you exist on this planet and meeting your needs for food is a fundamental human right. So intuitive eating often gets misinterpreted in this diety way that my colleague and three-time past podcast guest, Isabel Fox and Duke, calls the hunger and fullness diet. Intuitive eating is not the hunger and fullness diet. You do not have to wait until you feel physiologically hungry in order to deserve to eat. You deserve to eat regularly for self-care and for pleasure and for all the reasons, right, which it sounds like you're already doing. It sounds like you're taking care of yourself by eating regularly and you're acknowledging that you find pleasure in food. And that is great. That's not to say that maybe you don't also need to eat more at your meals and snacks because it sounds like, you know, I really can't tell from your question, but some people still skimp on food, even with a three meal and three snack structure, because the diet mentality can find a way to restrict even with that framework, right? But at least having that structure is a really good start. It's a good foundation to make sure that you're eating enough because if you don't even have that structure, then you're further away from kind of what your body needs to feel nourished regularly. The other thing is, 
you've been through a lot of food deprivation in your life, right? And when deprivation has disconnected you from your body's hunger cues, it can be hard to recognize hunger until it's raging. And specifically, it can be really hard to recognize or feel pangs in the stomach. Like that type of hunger sometimes just goes away when people have been restricted. And and running a marathon, by the way, is a very depriving experience for your body because it's putting it in an energy deficit. It's telling it there's not enough food available. And if you're still eating as much as you were eating before, but you're running a marathon, your body's going to feel that famine situation happening and it's going to set off alarm bells, right? And so it's possible that that sense of deprivation that your body felt when you're running the marathon or preparing for the marathon triggered you into this state of not really feeling hunger cues in this quote unquote traditional way. Because most people think that hunger only manifests as a feeling of emptiness or growling in the stomach. But the truth is that there are many signs of hunger that can show up actually well before you feel your stomach growling. And for some folks, your stomach might never growl or might only growl if you reach dangerously high levels of hunger. So hunger manifests in all kinds of other ways. And I'm willing to bet that you're eating in response to these other ways already, at least some of them. So these other ways include things like thinking about food, right? Fantasizing about your next meal or what you want to cook for dinner, thinking that food sounds good. So that's an interesting one because a lot of people with disordered eating find that they're obsessed with food. They think about it constantly, right? I remember in my disordered eating days, that was the case for me. And that's part of what drove me to start writing about food and nutrition, right? As I was already constantly thinking about it. So why not make it my career when I was in my early days of working as a journalist, right? So thinking and fantasizing about food is definitely one sign that you could be hungry that doesn't feel physiological, right? It feels more mental, but that actually is a way that your body can manifest hunger. Another one is salivation, having your mouth water in response to thoughts of food or pictures of food or smells of food. Another one could be difficulty making decisions, right? Feeling sort of indecisive, feeling fatigued or listless, even having a sense of boredom. Another one is difficulty concentrating or losing focus, feeling restless, uncomfortable, or anxious, right? Feeling irritable or annoyed. All of these things are emotional manifestations, right? Emotional states that can be signs of underlying hunger. And so it doesn't seem, quote unquote, physiological, but it's actually signs that your body is giving you that you are hungry and that you need to honor and listen to by having food, right? Responding to those things by eating is a really great self-care move. Another one could be sweating, which is a physiological sign, but sweating in the absence of heat or exertion, headaches, or nausea. And these last three usually signify a pretty high level of hunger. So if you're at the place where you're having sweating, headaches, and nausea from hunger, that means you've probably gone way too long without eating, right? You're really deprived. So if you feel any of those symptoms that I just mentioned, those can also be clues that it's time to eat, even if you're not experiencing stomach sensations of hunger like growling or hunger pangs, right? Those quote-unquote classic sensations of hunger are so not the whole story. They're just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to telling your body that it's hungry or your body communicating to your brain rather that it's hungry. So the bottom line is that you're allowed to eat for any reason whatsoever, whether you feel hungry or not, right? Whether you quote unquote feel physiologically hungry or not, because feeding yourself and taking pleasure in food is a human right. 
And you may also be overlooking subtle signs of hunger that you're already experiencing. And so knowing those signals that I just mentioned, or maybe there's others that come up for you that you notice, knowing your own signals of hunger can help you be even more attentive to your need for food and take care of yourself even better. Just like, you know, a parent who knows a baby's subtle signs of hunger, their particular cries or the way they move their body in some way, whatever it is, can help them take better care of the baby. So I hope that's helpful in recognizing your signs of hunger. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it much more quickly than I can here, that question, by the way, was from like a year ago, if not more, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, where I do a monthly Q&A podcast exclusively for course participants, and I answer all of your questions every month. It also has a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating. And the library of monthly Q&A podcasts that I've done in the past has hundreds of answers that I've given to other people already so that you can really delve into all the common and not so common questions that come up for people when they're on this intuitive eating path. When you join, you also get access to our private community forum that's on my website now. It's no longer on Facebook. It's a private group on my website exclusively for course participants so that you can have daily guidance from me and my team, as well as from hundreds of other people who are in the course and on this intuitive eating path with you. As a participant named Molly said, I am so, so, so grateful for this course, this community, and the monthly Q&As. Thank you so much, Christy, for answering my questions in this month's installment. It's honestly so special to hear a personal answer to my question, and I'm met with great ease and reassurance that where I am is okay. Another participant named Kate said, I cannot thank you enough for this resource and the online community you've created. It's a vital buffer against diet culture. If you're ready to join them and break free from diet culture to reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Amy Severson. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Yeah, growing up, I, I grew up in a family. I have a really big family on both sides. My Both my dad and my mom have a lot of siblings. And dieting was just part of life. Everyone did it all of the time. So one of those things that like, because everyone did it so much and particularly the women did it so much, you kind of grew up, well, at least I grew up really feeling like that's just what you did when you became an adult was dieted. You cut your hair short because that's what they did. And then they went on a diet. So it was just really normal. Like I remember my mom doing diet after diet when I was younger, when I was a kid, and just never being satisfied with her body and never being really comfortable and okay. And she was a single mom and was kind of always in and out of the dating scene. And I think that probably played into it a little bit for her too. But dieting was just so normal. And I don't remember, if I think back, I don't remember ever having like a super normal quote-unquote relationship with food there was always some pressure to eat certain foods like eat your vegetables or to lose weight somehow that I can remember or like avoid certain foods because they weren't good enough or healthy enough or on so-and-so's diet that they were following and that was just kind of my whole childhood I don't think I started any explicit diets until I was probably middle school-ish but 
I became like super aware of my body size and being a little bit bigger. And I come from a bigger family. Like everyone is a little bigger and that's okay. It's just kind of how we are. But it was bad for me, you know. I remember it was one of those stupid things in elementary school where they weigh you in front of the entire school and then like everyone talks about it, which is just super great. Oh, horrifying. <laughs> like why why did I do that? I really hope they stop. Like I hope that's over. I kind of doubt it, but I can hope. I know. I feel like that public shaming of kids for their weight has just increased with like the BMI report cards and the supposed obesity epidemic, quote unquote. There's just more and more terrible weight stigmatizing interventions that are happening to kids now. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that was a big moment for me when I realized like where I sat in comparison to the rest of the class. And it was uh, the first time I was really like, self, I want to say like intrinsically motivated to lose weight, but it wasn't intrinsic. It was definitely a lot of societal pressure and societal fat phobia. But I also had this like really strange dynamic with my body growing up. My dad was with a woman during my like early childhood who was very, very body shaming to both me and my older brother. She would like hide our Easter chocolate from us and tell us that we didn't need it because we would gain too much weight and I was five and there was also a lot of like wrapped up in like what you're supposed to be like as a woman, like how you're supposed to be there to please men. And so it was all very aesthetic and very like, you're supposed to be sexy, which yeah, let's just hypersexualize five-year-olds forever. And yeah, that is terrifying. Yeah. So my like whole childhood is just wrapped up in this like rules, food rules and weight shame. And then it all kind of got a lot more intense when I, I, I saw my first dietitian when I was 11 or 12. Terrible experience. Uh, she was the only dietitian in my hometown, which is not the case anymore, but she was the only dietitian in my hometown. And I remember she put me on this like really restrictive diet. Like Looking back as a dietitian now, I'm like, oh my God, why did you do that to me? And she like weighed me and measured me in her office and I went weekly and it was so intense. And I also have, um, my entire life I've had really bad, well, on and off really bad IBS. And like, there were a bunch of foods that were very clearly triggering me during that process. And I would get kind of sick and it was just kind of okay because it fit within my meal plan. And it was all calorie counting at the time. Like what you were eating didn't really matter as long as it fit within the calories. So I ate some really gross food, just trying to like fit into that really restrictive calorie diet as a 12 year old. Surprise, it didn't work. I don't I don't think I've ever lost any significant amount of weight. And it just kind of continued from there. Like I did the wonderful diet that we're all fighting against right now against kids. Did that for a while. And the Weight Watchers plan. <laughs> yep. I, followed my mom right along with that one. And that was a terrible experience too, because I found ways to like hoard my points and like eat the weirdest foods just because I couldn't eat anything else. And, but it was encouraged. Like it was all okay because I was within my points and lowered points. And so it kind of set you up for that restrict binge cycle. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure. It definitely did. And it was all kind of like low key restrict binge all through high school just again and again, I was never happy with my weight. I was always super ashamed to the point where I would, I was really shy. And I have some friends from high school that would tell you that I was not shy at all. And they, I was 
poppy super popular but I had like four friends and those are the only people I would talk to everyone else I was really afraid to ever really be known to because it left me open to criticism and I didn't want my body to be shamed and that was just such a deep fear for me that I really like hid in the shadows had any of your peers ever criticized your body or was it mostly just from your family I had a few comments from peers but it was never a lot it was never really explicit most of it was from my family Everyone from grandparents to very loving concern from my parents and sibling. And it was always very loving. It was never mean intended, but it was a lot. It was a lot. But my my peers were never explicit about any of it, which is I'm lucky in that way. Like I didn't have this really super negative experience, but it felt really implied for me. Like microaggressions, not macroaggressions. Exactly. Exactly. And it took me a long time to realize that those still matter, that those are still very real and very harmful and can really stick with you. So I think it got, my relationship with food got really, it spiraled from this just like low key disordered eating to an eating disorder right after high school. My mom passed away when I was 18. She had breast cancer and it was a very quick and very rapid. And my mom was definitely the closest person in my family to me. And I lived alone with her for a really long time. And so I was just really close with her and it hit me really hard. So I spiraled pretty, pretty quickly into some severe binging. I had been restricting quite a bit before that. Just, I don't, I don't even know why. Some of it was like IBS symptoms. I was avoiding certain foods. Some of it was like this new love bliss that I was, I guess, <laughs> this is what my aunt told me. And then after that happened, I kept restricting, but I would also start binging really severely. And I was really depressed and really just going through a lot of stuff and really, you know, grieving. And that intense binging and restricting lasted for years to the point where I would spend time like curl up in the corner of my room crying because I was, I just couldn't stick with my diet because I'd binged again. And my husband, bless his soul, just like would come up to me and try and comfort me and tell me that, you know, it would work again next time because he was just trying to comfort me as best as he could. And I was just torn about it. But that lasted for quite a while through college, actually. I was still kind of in that process. It's interesting you mentioned like with your husband, you know, that he was able to comfort you or try to comfort you and he knew about it. Did the sort of new love bliss, you know, when you were first dating, did you worry that if you started eating more, that was going to change your relationship? Was there any of that in there where you were like trying to diet for his approval? Oh, for sure. Yeah. We went to high school together and he was like one of the popular kids in school. And like his girlfriend before me was this like athlete and complete opposite of me. And I felt that very, very real. Like it was very present for me. And down to like, this is where people started to make comments of like, really? Her? You're with her? And I was really afraid for a long time that if I had, if I changed eating, if I wasn't as athletic as he was, or as he, as I thought he wanted me to be, then he would change his opinion of me. Come to find out, you know, it's all these years later, we're still together. So that's obviously not the case. But thank God, but it was really, really real for me. And it kind of kept driving me to this restriction. And it sounds like you had been told also by like your old stepmom or dad's girlfriend or whatever, that 
that was literally a key to male approval. Yeah, it was like super explicit by her. And then it was just implicit in the rest of my family too. Like, you know, when you're dating, you try really hard to diet and be thin and maybe men will still like you if you gain weight once you're married. Yeah, it was pretty, there's a lot, a lot of messages in that, a lot, a lot tied up in that. Yeah, so much patriarchy in addition to the weight stigma. Yeah, and I come from a, it's another point too, I come from part of my family is really, really religious. So I grew up with this really like kind of like overhanging, shameful kind of attitude. It was everything from if I showed too much cleavage as a 10-year-old, I would get like chastised for it. And I was like, I was a kid who like went into puberty pretty early. So my boobs showed up pretty high in my chest and pretty early and they were kind of hard to hide. So I got chastised a lot for that. And it was the age of low-waisted jeans that didn't you know, stay on anybody's body. (laughs) Um, So I, there was like, everything was working against me in that. Like, Hey, look, here's every inch of skin that my super religious grandparents told me that I'm not supposed to show. And all these like systems of oppression really kind of existed in my life and had these really overlying rules that I just kind of applied to myself and didn't really realize I was doing. Yeah. So you felt like you had to fit into those rigid structures and those systems of oppression by changing yourself rather than seeing them for what they were. Cause of course, when they're just given to you, it's like, that's all, you know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's really hard to kind of see how shameful, you know, those kinds of systems are until you step out of them and allow yourself to really question them. But it took a long time to be able to get to that point. Yeah. So I'm curious, like how that, that all unfolded for you then what happened around adolescence and kind of early marriage at that point? Yeah. After everything happened with my mom, I took some time off of school. It was right after I graduated. And, you know, the whole time I took four years off of school. So I didn't go back to college until I was 22. Got married when I was 22. I actually got married like my second week of college. The whole time I was really in this pretty intense restrict binge cycle. And then I got to college and, you know, I went to school to be a dietitian. It was this mix of like, so my, my motivation to become a dietitian was this mix of wanting to be a better dietitian because of the experiences I'd had and wanting to quote unquote crack the code and do it better for myself. I thought if I just like went to the classes, I could figure out how to really lose weight and keep it off forever. You learn the scientific reasons and scientific way to lose weight and then you just do it and magically be thin. Right. And like psychology myself, I guess, to be able to do it. So I spent four years in in college as the biggest in my class by far and felt that pretty real too. And that just kind of fueled it as well. Like if I look like this, I can't be a dietitian. So I just kept trying to diet and trying to lose weight and trying to look like everybody else until I graduated. We graduated and we moved away from the town I went to college in. And I kind of, got fed up. I just was exhausted. I was exhausted of just feeling like a failure all the time. Cause every time I would binge, every time I would quote unquote fail a diet, I felt like a failure. So I started just frantically looking up eating disorder therapists and I booked an appointment with the first one who responded to me and told me that they had open availability. And Thank God I did because all these years later, I'm actually still seeing that person. And it was life-changing for me to, to start that process. 
That is amazing. And also shows a lot of foresight that you were able to see, okay, this is not uh, like, this is disordered behavior. I need help with this. And I'm going to reach out to someone because I think in diet culture, especially for people in larger bodies, the tendency is just to like blame yourself and feel like you need to diet harder, which it sounds like you did for a while, but then eventually you sort of were like, okay, I can't do this alone. I need help. Yeah. I'm not really sure what it was that made me like switch. Health at every size was not a thing for me at that point. Intuitive eating was probably a term I'd heard very vaguely from another therapist, but it didn't apply to me until I was thin. It was all very vague and amorphous. And, but I did have this weird, like all through college at the very least all through college, I had this very like intense feeling that I shouldn't like as a dietitian, I shouldn't be telling people to like avoid certain foods or be that restrictive, like, you know, as restrictive as these ridiculous diets all tell us to be. And I have no idea why I had that feeling and no idea why I didn't listen to it for myself. But it was just like so intense, like to the point where people would start to talk about these diets and I would get mad and I don't know why. (laughs) But it was so real. And I think that's probably whatever that piece of me was really pushed me to seek out someone who could help me. And I'm really glad that I found the person that I did because it all kind of went from there. Yeah. What did you start to learn in therapy that helped you change your relationship with food? Yeah, I think within the first couple sessions, the first like couple were obviously me just like spilling my soul. And within two or three sessions, I swear is when she started to talk with me about Hayes. She started to talk about health at every size and I'd never heard of this before. And I was baffled and I think it took me a while to really believe it. I read a few really straddle the line books about binge eating and about restriction and about weight loss. Really wanted to believe those ones. Really wanted to believe that the, the key was to lose weight and then it would all just kind of be better. Right, losing weight will magically cure your binging. Right. Yeah. That's not true. Nope. Uh, (laughs) Not true at all. And I just like it. I think it took some convincing and just kind of like slowly reading more and more radical books and listening to more and more radical podcasts. And it really kind of started to click. And then we started to talk about intuitive eating. And, you know, at this point, I was, I wasn't a dietitian at this point, but I was a, a DTR, a dietetic technician. And so like, I felt like I knew all this nutrition stuff. So it felt so weird to me to be having someone else like tell me there's a different way. Like there's more than just making sure you get X amount of whatever in a day. It was shocking to me. It was shocking to my brain to realize that it could be different. Right. Especially after you'd done this whole degree and you had done the dietetic technician registration, there's so much emphasis on numbers and counting and all of it that yeah it is just such a radically different thing to think nutrition and these minutiae are not the only way to see the world and to see your relationship with food yeah exactly exactly and it was I'm, I'm really glad I learned all this or started on this process before I became a dietitian I feel like it saved me from feeling more shame about some of the early things that I've done <laughs> should say that So I feel lucky, really lucky in that regard. Yeah, and really lucky that I found the therapist I did. It was serendipitous, I swear. Right. I mean, yeah, because not every therapist that you stumble into who says that they specialize in eating disorders actually gets it in that way. And I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about how there's corners of the eating disorder treatment world that are so tied up in diet culture and that it's 
still very entrenched in eating disorder, in some circles of eating disorder treatment to be like, oh, well, first we'll fix the binging and then we'll talk about weight loss, like as though that can ever be compatible. So the fact that you stumbled into someone who really understood Hayes and the research on how like you can't diet, dieting is not compatible with eating disorder recovery is, yeah, incredibly lucky. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And I like refuse to let this person go now because therapists are impossible to find here. So (laughs) I know you find a good one and you got to stick with them. Yeah. Hold on for dear life. I swear. (laughs) How did your recovery unfold from there then? Like, it sounds like you had some resistance at first for sure. Yeah, it was, it was a while of resistance. I couldn't tell you how long it was, but it was like, it was a lot of bargaining almost, uh, kind of trying to like negotiate my way through the process. Like, well, but I'll lose weight when I do this, right? Like when I eat intuitively, it means that I'll lose weight because I'm not binging. Right. And now I see that reflected in my clients all the time. And so it was a while of that. And then I was actually, to be honest, your podcast that made me start to really like dive headfirst into it and kind of let myself really believe it and kind of soak up as much of it as I could. And that's when I started. I read Health at Every Size. I read most of Health at Every Size. I there are parts I still actually like kind of refuse to read, but I read most of Health at Every Size. I read Body Respect. I just started like I read Intuitive Eating. I read God knows a bunch of other books. And I just kind of soaked them up and just really dove in and just started following people on social media and just trying to learn as much as I possibly could because it started, it just like clicked. It started to really click with that like deep belief that I've had that I shouldn't be telling people to do those things. And maybe I can say that to myself too. And maybe it really is okay to be fat. Like maybe that's not a terrible thing. And from there, I really kind of went all in and just, I didn't force myself to believe it. I just thought the right way to say it, but I like really did the work and it was, it was a lot of work and it still is sometimes because we live in this freaking culture. That's so not this. Sometimes you walk, you walk out of the haze bubble and you're like, Oh God, like there's still people out there who are cavemen. Cool. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's so backwards outside of the haze bubble. Yeah. We're kind of protected from it and justifiably so not to want to expose ourselves to that kind of stigma, but then, you know, going outside of it can be a real rude awakening. Yeah, exactly. So I really just did the work and wanted to believe it. And yeah, here I am. Yeah. That's sort of wanting a different way too, and wanting to believe or wanting to at least be open to it is really key to this transition because I think there's people who come in and they're just like, I mean, it's the people who think dieting is working for them that I see are the most entrenched, the most intractable and sort of like refuse to even engage with the ideas or just debate them before they even understand what they are, you know? And yes, it sounds like you were at a place where you were just like, hungry for another way and ready for something that was going to actually help you because you were done with the binging. You couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I'm, I think I'm lucky in the fact that I was in that mindset. Like I remember hearing for, I don't know what happened, what clicked for me, but I remember hearing all those years ago, it was like the early two thousands when it started to become really mainstream that people were talking about diets don't work, you know, 
10% of people regain the weight. And I remember thinking like, or 90% of people regain 10% don't. I remember thinking like, I'm going to be part of the 10%. I know it. Like I'm going to do everything I can to be part of that elite group. And well, (laughs) I never got anything close to that. So just something like all this information is kind of like marinated long enough for me that it really became real. And that's, I think, such a key too, is like really letting it sink in and marinate and not giving up or walking away, but sort of letting yourself be, be changed by it, letting yourself be open to it. Cause yeah, diet culture will swallow you back up into the mainstream so easily if you don't give it a chance. Yes. Yeah. And like, even looking back on some of the, the things I'd done, like books I read early in my recovery or um, like journal entries or Facebook posts, things like that. Awesome Facebook memories, you know, that like were really straddle the liney. Um, I didn't, I'm not a very like open, I don't share everything on my personal social media because I am with a lot of family on my social media. A little bit of a protection thing, but so I would have do these like really vague posts that were just super straddle the line. And I look back and I'm like, ooh, like, oh, hello, that's where I was still thinking about it. And I'm really glad I stuck with it through that because um, that's the point where if I had kind of stopped, if I had kind of let that be the place where I felt comfortable, then I would have been completely swallowed by diet culture again, especially like when and if in the future, like health problems come up or any of those things that like lean you into diet culture a little bit more, it would have been so easy just to kind of fall back into the swamp. Yeah. So you kind of had to like really walk away from it. And that's interesting too, the sort of, I think about that a lot that, cause I went through the straddle the line phase too. I think we all do, you know, but yeah. like what makes some people kind of go through that phase to the other side where there is so much more freedom and clarity versus staying and you know I, I mean I think we've all seen this you know all of us in the Hayes community seen this a lot recently especially on social media where there are these people who are in the straddle the line phase that are just fighting tooth and nail to stay there and justify it you know to justify why the straddle the line place is good and they're right and they can have weight loss and intuitive eating and that oh anti-diet can mean weight loss or haze can mean weight loss you know intentional weight loss and it's just like this mindset of fighting so hard to stay in that place that really unhealed sort of unfree place is just antithetical to true healing and also kind of foreign to me personally. Cause I, I do remember fighting and debating when I first heard about haze, but I think as I got into it more and more, and as I even got into that straddle the line place, I was certainly willing to be called out or called in by never it feels good, but like to have fellow professionals be like, Hey, you know, actually this thing on your website is problematic or actually saying that to a client isn't really helpful. Here's a better way or something like, I think I knew enough to know what I didn't know or to know that like maybe other people who've been doing this longer than me have some things to say that are important. And I should listen to them when they say like, Hey, that thing on your website is problematic or maybe don't say this kind of thing to a client, but say it this way instead or whatever, you know, giving me supervision or just peer feedback was extremely helpful 
And I was able to hear that and do better versus, you know, the people that we see on social media kicking and screaming and fighting for their fence straddly position are just unwilling to hear that feedback. And it's not, it's not getting in there, you know? And I think that's, it's just interesting to me how different people can be on that front. Oh, totally. It's like, I feel like that's like the threshold where you cross that like Dunning-Kruger threshold where suddenly you're like willing to realize that or able to notice how little you actually know. And it is like, I'm way more willing and actually kind of crave being called out now versus then. Like, I think it would have like hit me really personally to be called out back then. Now it's kind of like, this isn't a personal attack. You know, I appreciate you trying to help educate me in this process, but it took a lot of work to get here and a lot of acceptance. It's a very vulnerable place to sit, but it's very important because there is so much about this. I don't know. You know, I didn't create A's. I didn't create intuitive eating. It wasn't even created in my lifetime. And so many, and there are so many more marginalized groups than me and that I'm not included in. And they have so much information and so much knowledge and so much history that is so important to this whole world, a whole process. That's, yeah, such a great way to put it. And that ability to be, to depersonalize it and to say like, this isn't just about me. This isn't about me at all, really. This is about this larger movement and the effort to do no harm or to do better. Maybe I can give up my own personal feelings of being attacked or feeling defensive in service of something larger than me and allow myself to be changed or to grow from the input from these people with such valuable perspectives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, it's, it's also very real to still feel attacked sometimes and to still, you know, really take it personally, which happens or human. And to be able to, you know, have a space where you can unpack it, where you can like, avoid that knee jerk reaction of emotionality that maybe is not the point is super important because then we can really learn, you know, when we have that knee jerk defensiveness, it's actually a sign that we need to take a step back and see what it is that we are feeling defensive about. Why are we, why are we feeling so attacked? Right. What is it about this, this idea or this person's way of approaching us or whatever it is that's making us feel attacked and it's not about them it's about like something in me that maybe needs attending to yeah exactly how did you get to that place of that kind of openness and ability to engage with this process from the place of like fence straddling to the place you're at now some of it was that progression of radical ideas that I kind of stepped into going from just the very basic concepts like I think the first thing I did read was well, the first thing that was really haze based was help at every size. And then I kind of got more and more radical. I started to really read into Sonia Rodé Taylor's work and Virgie Tovar's work and Jess Baker and just really kind of like dug into more and more radical stuff and more and more radical social media and realizing I'm very like cautious. I don't, I'm kind of shy by nature. So I don't like post on things very often. Like Facebook groups and stuff, but I observe. I'm a lurker. So I see people, like I would see people get called out and I would see the reactions and see some of the things people would say, like, hey, if you're feeling defensive, this is a sign. And then that kind of started to give me like some own, my own introspection with that. Cause when I, I started to notice when I would feel defensive about someone else's posts or a comment I would hear someone say or a podcast, like, whoa, that was, 
not a personal attack on me. This person is not speaking directly to me. And then some of like, that was like the very basic work of starting to realize that needed to happen. And then things like working with Dana and Hillary at, at Body Trust and Be Nourished also really brought that into perspective because we talk a lot about that in the Body Trust provider trainings, a lot about, at least in my cohort, we're very, let's call each other out and be really, you know, open with each other about how it is and know that it's not a personal attack. And it was just really present and all that and all those conversations and all that training. And so I just kind of went from this observational to this very experiential thing. And now I kind of, I don't crave being called out because it still hurts my little shyness, but I know that being called out is not a personal attack. I know that very logically and I can kind of sit with it. That's huge. I feel you very much on that front. Like I also am pretty shy and introverted and, you know, need a lot of space to process things and social dynamics and all of that stuff. So it's tough to be called out from that perspective. And it's just tough to be called out in general. But yeah, I would much rather know, I would much rather be called out on something that isn't landing with a group of people who's more marginalized than I am than not to know and keep doing something that's harmful. And I think too, it's probably important to note here, like, I think that it's really important to dig in and introspect on our own reasons for reacting to something when it's not abuse, right? When it's not like stigma, when it's just, hey, this hurt me or this is hurtful to a marginalized group of people, like, heads up, please stop. Like, that's not abuse. That's not stigma. That's advancing the cause of social justice to call people out on something that's harmful. The stuff that's not, that you don't need to introspect about or feel bad for having your own reaction to or defensiveness of is like, if someone is stigmatizing you for the size of your body or the shape of your body or your skin color, your gender, any of that stuff, it's like, that's just straight up oppression. And you have every right to feel every way about it that you want. Yes. Please feel whatever you feel about being oppressed and marginalized. Please feel that strongly. But it is, yeah, it's when you feel that fragility, it's like, maybe think about it. Maybe it's a sign to think about it. And yeah, it's not an attack. It's not a personal attack on me to say, wow, the way you worded that was a little bit tone deaf. It's a learning opportunity, but it takes some patience with yourself even to kind of, and some really self-compassion and some kindness to really notice that it's okay to feel defensive and fragile and to then unpack it. Right. It's okay to feel defensive and fragile and unpack it and then maybe come back to whoever brought you to that, you know, information in a way that is not lashing back at them, but yes, thanking them for their service, thanking them for their labor and bringing it to your attention. And then like, if you have to, which I often have to, it's like to say, thanks so much. I appreciate your labor in doing this. I, I'm taking this into consideration. Please know that. And now I'm going to go off in my corner and like process and not be here in public processing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm curious also to dig into your experiences of marginalization in the world as a dietitian, you know, specifically like being a fat dietitian, having that experience of being the biggest person in the classes and kind of how you got from the DTR place to deciding to go for full on RD registration and what it's been like for you to be a dietitian, probably experiencing people's weight related microaggressions or sometimes macroaggressions in the field and how you process that. Yeah. So when I was a DTR, I worked at a hospital. I was just doing food service there. 
which so it was fine. It was a lot of like boring calorie count stuff and food service stuff I didn't actually want to do. That's a big reason why I didn't want to be a DTR. It's a terrible, boring job. <laughs> enough food service in my life. But I actually had this moment where I wasn't sure if I wanted to become a dietitian anymore. Like if I wanted to actually like keep applying for internships and go through the whole process, because that's a huge process. And I was feeling really unsure because I didn't know how I could be a dietitian and like reconcile all these traditional dietetic processes, like weight loss. And even like MNT, like medical nutrition therapy, it was really hard to reconcile with haze and with intuitive eating. And even then, and especially now, I have pretty radical feelings about health at every size and intuitive eating as a dietitian. Like I don't don't like to talk about nutrition with anybody unless it is relevant, like extremely relevant to them. I don't feel like a lot of people need to sit down and talk about nutrition because I feel like they know it. The gentle nutrition principle of intuitive eating is one I feel like they don't need to hear from me. I will bust some myths and then we can move on because it doesn't need to be this big, big thing. But having those beliefs even then and trying to reconcile it with what a dietitian is quote unquote supposed to do and supposed to be was an interesting process and took some unpacking and some kind of figuring out. And then I realized that that's, it was okay. That it was okay. And being a dietitian could still help get me where I wanted to be, which is helping people in this way. And so I applied for internships um, I was lucky enough to get into, well, I did a really fast internship, which was amazing, but I was lucky enough to get into an internship where one of the instructors is health at every size informed. And they had an opportunity at our orientation to do the little poodle science video. And I was like in the back corner, like clapping and excited. And it was great. I had like never really, I didn't know that there were any dietitians, especially as instructors in the internships who were like this, you know, it's not advertised. Well, at least it wasn't. I think there are more now that are health at every size focused, but not many. Who was it? Was it anyone we know? Or it was Allison Harmon at Iowa State. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was. Uh, she was. She wasn't even my instructor, uh, which was which was sad for me. But she was there, and I was adjacent to her, and it was wonderful. So it was a really great experience. Like even just to see all these people watching poodle science for the first time was like, Oh my God, look at them all see this. That video makes me cry literally every time. (laughs) Right. I know. I I can't watch it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That was just like, that was such a good experience to start that whole process. And I did a distance internship. So I got to choose all my own preceptors and it was, it was in the hospital that I already worked at. So I knew, I knew all the dietitians that I did my like clinical rotations with, and it was all in a pretty small community here. And so that was interesting. But when I did a lot of <laughs> this interesting, and I really tried to bring Hayes and intuitive eating to most of my sessions that I got to dictate. That's awesome. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be challenging in a, an environment like that, right? Yeah, especially with, you know, your preceptors, they have certain goals and certain my things in mind. And I did a brief stint with an outpatient nutrition clinic and there were some challenges there for me because I felt like I saw myself in a lot of the clients who came in. It was a diabetes clinic and I have a pretty big interest in diabetes. My, my husband is type one diabetic and so it's just very much part of my life. 
So I was, I have a lot of, I'm not a CDE and I don't want to be a CDE, but I have a lot of knowledge about diabetes and how to like, how it functions in your life. But I saw so many people come in with either, it was type two diabetes was more common than type one to come in, at least the ones that I saw, because the ones who worked, the dietitians who worked with type one didn't want to work with me quite as much. I think there was more, they wanted to get in and get out and get their work done, which is fine. But I saw myself with a lot of, a lot of the clients, because I, especially there's a bariatric surgery program in Washington state through state health insurance, which is problematic, so problematic in its own right, because state health insurance here also doesn't cover, I think in most states doesn't cover medical nutrition therapy for anything other than like couple diseases and apparently bariatric surgery here in Washington. It's horrible. It's horrible. So a lot of people end up choosing bariatric surgery and they are their X amount. I don't know how many um, of required dietitian visits before you're allowed to, to qualify for surgery. And I sat down in so many of those sessions and just watched the person across from me just kind of reflect not only feelings, but experiences that I'd had in my life. And it was strange. It was so strange. And all I wanted to do was like, this isn't what you have. You don't have to do this. Like there's so much more. And they were just, I could just tell that they were at such a, I wasn't allowed to say that for one thing, but also I could just tell that they were at this place where this was their only hope. It felt like it was their only hope and their only chance. And it was heartbreaking then to see ugh, so many of those people and to know that that's still happening is so hard for me. And that was another moment where I'm like, shit, did I do the right thing? Like, yeah. Do I really want to be a dietitian if this yeah. is how it's going to be? If I have to do this, is this really what I want to do? And luckily that wasn't, I mean, I had a good time in that rotation. I learned a lot, but I was whew, pretty, pretty overwhelmed by a lot of that stuff. It sounds like it. Yeah. It hit really close to home for you and you, you weren't allowed to kind of bring in the haze and intuitive eating stuff that had been helpful to you. So it was, must have felt very stuck. Yeah, it was it was a pretty awkward situation to be sitting with. And what's interesting now is a lot of the dietitians who work in that clinic actually are becoming more and more open to the idea of haze. They're coming to like local groups and learning from us and asking questions. And it's slow, but it's starting to change. And it's kind of cool to see. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really really exciting to see because we need it here. We just, we need it. And I'm, I'm just really grateful that that change is starting to happen a little bit more mainstream, even if it's just here. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it, it is starting to happen in pockets all around the country and even somewhat around the world too, which is yeah. heartening to hear, you know, whenever I meet people at conferences or events or whatever, and they'll say like, oh, you know, we have a haze group that I just started or that my colleague just started or whatever. And the local diety dietitians are interested and they're coming, even if they're still fence straddling, they're, they're there, they're showing up and they're trying to get this information, which is really cool. Yeah. And just hearing those little questions that they'll have and wanting to learn more about haze or wanting resources is just like, yes, like it's a little victory. Even if it's still so obviously fence straddling, it's like, yes, you're so much closer. So that's amazing. And, but after that internship was over, I actually just kind of jumped right into private practice and which was scary. I did the same. <laughs> yeah. 
scary. Yeah. I also work at the local university. I have the whole time. I don't work very much because they also expect things of me that I'm not really willing to give. But I, yeah, I do mostly full-time private practice now. And I'm so grateful that I had have this opportunity because this is where I can do that work. And it feels weird to say how meaningful social media can be, but social media is super meaningful in some of these circles in this, re- this recovery world. And it can mean so much to so many people. And I, I've actually kind of learned that that work kind of feeds my soul a little bit and be, being able to be radical and really advocate for this stuff and for fat acceptance is, and for fat activism is just really beautiful for me. That's awesome. Is that different? Do you feel than the the sort of one-on-one work you're doing in private practice? Do you feel like you can be more radical or embrace fat acceptance more vocally kind of in in a public sphere? I think so. Yeah. The one-on-one work, because it tends to be so individualized for obvious reasons, it's a lot of people like on a one-on-one basis aren't really ready to hear that really radical stuff. A lot of them like follow me on social media and know that I'm like that, but they don't necessarily come to me to hear that. Some of them do, which is kind of cool. I love those sessions, just us like getting to talk about fat activism, which makes me happy. But in, in, in on social media, I partly because I have a pretty strict policy of like not giving, well, I don't like to give nutrition advice at all, but I will not give individual nutrition advice on social media in any way. So I kind of, have a lot more space to be more radical and really advocate a lot more. I kind of get to stray out of my lane a little bit more. Like I'm not expected to be like, well, my insurance is paying for this session. So I have to be, I have to meet X, Y, Z goals. It's like, I get to be an advocate for things that aren't just about nutrition. It feels really nice because there's so much more to this. It's so much more than about food and about just the body size of it all either there's you know the social justice aspect of this work is so deep and so rich and so there's so much to to address and to talk about and I feel more free to do that on social media I feel that I yeah I asked that question because I definitely feel the same like in my practice, especially when I was doing more one-on-one work which I'm not doing as much of anymore but you know doing kind of more group work and still some of the one-on-one I feel like very attentive to the individual's needs obviously because that's what it is that's what it is when you're doing one-on-one nutrition counseling or coaching or whatever it is but yeah social media and writing and the podcast certainly I feel like the world opens up to talk about and encompass these much bigger ideas that really inform what the people who are coming to see me as individuals are going through, right? Like it's like diet culture is the reason that a lot of them are here stuck in this place in their life or coming to see me. And so if I can help address diet culture at the larger level, at the cultural level and start to make changes and push and encourage other people to get on board and and see things differently, then I think it really helped. It does eventually affect individuals too, but it's also so much more rewarding for me to be able to do that bigger work. I have a quote in my book, this quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, where he, it's something like, you know, at a certain point you have to stop pulling people out of the river one by one. You have to go upstream and see why they're falling in. And I just love that because I feel like that's so 
emblematic of why I do like all the activism and journalism that I do because it's going upstream. Like I, I love being able to help pull people out of the river, but also I'm like, I'm fucking exhausted by pulling people out of the river. And like, why are, why are so many people needing to be pulled out of the river? Yeah. Yeah. And especially like living in a bigger body, whether it's me or my clients, like I can only tell you to love yourself, which I don't really say anyway. I'm like, let's seek neutrality. I can only tell you that so many times before it's like, but I still don't fit in this chair. I still don't fit in this public space. I still feel marginalized by the culture at large. And I can't help you on an individual level with that. Not really. I can give you resilience and then I'm done. Beyond that, it's the culture that has to change. And that's everything from like individual like restaurants and planes and, you know, those, all those conversations we have to like, Hey, it feels like I really only see skinny women eating ice cream on social media talking about fat acceptance. Why is there no one else? Or people have told me this is like, this is where I feel like I can, from my own place that is maybe more unique than some others is I feel like I can be the person who is the dietitian that's the fat dietitian that's eating ice cream. I like actually refuse to put pictures of like my salads on Instagram or like me working out on Instagram because one, I don't need to prove into anyone that I am whatever. I don't need to prove to anyone that I eat vegetables or that I exercise. That's mine if I want it to be. And that's it. And I feel that very strongly for, for everybody. And I also don't feel like we need another dietitian who's eating vegetables on Instagram or making healthy quote unquote substitutes in their recipes. I just, we don't need that. And so I like have a very strong personal policy to like avoid anything that ever looked like it came out of one of my mom's diet books. (laughs) It's just super strong because there isn't that that's really hard to find. And, you know, if I'm going to post pictures of the McDonald's I got with my kid, then super cool because that's real. That's what I eat. And I mean, sure, maybe I eat vegetables too, but that's not the point. It's just so far from it. And like normalizing and validating people's ability to eat those kinds of foods that diet culture deems bad, especially for someone in a larger body, like especially as a fat dietitian to say, hey, look, I can do this and you have permission to do this too. And modeling that because, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier off mic about how there was no one kind of modeling to you what it would look like to be a fat dietitian and like a haze dietitian before you stepped into the role that you're in now. And so to be able to offer that to other people is really huge. And I think is, is culture changing for sure. So much more so than if you were to be like, and also here's my salad. Like, cause that's <laughs> yeah. just like, ugh, yeah, the world does not need any more of that from dietitians in any size body or any person in general. Like I feel like there's diet culture does way more than enough of that for everybody. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I definitely get from like working with individual sessions is I actually kind of get to hear the client's needs of what they like, what representation they want to see. And if it's something that I can offer, I kind of want to try to offer it because no one else is. Well, I'm sure there are some people doing it, but there are so few people doing it that it's, it's not saturating. It's not the mess it's not the message we take away and because of all that like this has become a very passionate thing for me is just like I write I have like a little sticky note next to my chair at my office I write down someone's like well I've 
I'd never see or someone kind of shamed this frozen meal from Trader Joe's. And that's what I have on a regular basis. Like that made me feel really bad. I'm like, all right, let's talk about frozen meals sometime on social media. Let's talk about this. And it kind of gives me an opportunity, like one, to kind of see what other people need, what other people are seeing as a lack. And if it's something that I can offer, I want to offer it. If it's not something that I can offer, then I want to help them find those people who can, because there are those people too, like people who are searching for dietitians of color or male dietitians or fat men dietitians or anyone talking about male body image, all these other areas that we're lacking. I want to help them find that because having representation and really feeling like you are not only that people like you exist, but that you are valid in this intuitive eating and health at every size space where it means eating ice cream for dinner or whatever weird fears we have about what intuitive eating means for us, you know, never eating a vegetable again, kind of fears that those are, you get to exist. You get to be represented and seen and just be in the space as well. And it's kind of hard to see when there's a lot of salads and a lot of thinness floating around. Right. It can take over. And because that stuff is so the norm in diet culture, and that's so like salads and thinness and glorifying thin people, maybe eating ice cream or like, oh, look at me, I can eat whatever I want. And also I'm thin. Like, that's just so the same old, same old in diet culture. That's so the norm of it that it's not really going to affect change. And I think can actually be really triggering to people who are new to this movement, especially, you know, and especially the folks who come in and like maybe have been galvanized by some of the radical fat acceptance messaging and history and roots of haze. And then see that like the haze hashtag on Instagram is taken over by thin people, some of whom are actually talking about intentional weight loss, you know, and tagging their posts as, you know, or like weight loss journeys, right? Like someone in a larger body who's like, you know, performing health to try to get out of a stigmatized group. Yeah, that is not helpful. That is not. And that can actually set people back a lot. I mean, I always say like, social media can be so helpful and such an important tool and asset, or it can be so detrimental and you have to really proceed with caution. And I think pick and choose your sources very carefully, which is why I like curate my guests so carefully on the podcast too. Cause I'm like, these are people who have messages I want to support and maybe don't just click the hashtag at random and expect (laughs) you know that to not trigger you because it probably will. Yeah. I like, I'm a pretty big advocate for not following any of those hashtags And it turns out like with some of the things I've seen over the past few days in particular, I'm really glad that I am not following them and I haven't told anyone else to follow them because people are like co-opting these terms and these hashtags in order to, I don't know why they're doing it, but use in their weight loss journeys and their, but it, but it's just good for me to do this or I love myself enough to do this. Oh, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. The love yourself thin diet. That's just just as ineffective and stigmatizing as any other diet. It's still a damn diet. Yes. (laughs) So funny, like how they, and there's this one person that I think a lot of anyone who follows me on Instagram and has followed this debacle over the last few days as we're talking, although this will (laughs) probably air months from now, but 
<laughs> sometime over the summer, late August, early September, this has all been going there down. There was some drama. <laughs> there was some drama. Yeah. From people who like call themselves anti-diet and are somehow yeah. trying to co-opt the anti-diet and haze ideas for, you know, and saying that like intentional weight loss is compatible with that, which it's just not. And it's so tough, I think, to, because again, that's the people who are in that fence straddling place who are trying to, and arguably also kind of using intuitive eating and anti-diet and haze for their own ends, maybe not that interested in actually knowing what they are, but to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe coming into these movements and have some good faith effort to try to learn about them, but then are also they have their other foot so squarely planted in diet culture and in this like business model that thrives on weight stigma that it's really incredibly harmful. That fence straddling is so harmful. And I think that's something that, you know, when people are new to this movement, it's hard to understand maybe like why, why can't we have both? Why can't we do, you know, have haze be for the people who, the people who need haze, quote unquote, and then weight loss be for the quote unquote people who need weight loss and everybody gets what they need. And it's so hard to like explain why that is not, why that doesn't work without triggering the criticism of like, well, you're so black and white and why are you lacking in nuance? And it's like, yeah. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Yes. That argument is uh, <laughs> everywhere. And it's so like, that's how you straddle like well some people really need weight loss like no no you cannot be haze and still advocate for weight loss for anybody and it's so it's just so everywhere and I, I the other one I hear a lot is from that subset of dietitians or medical professionals I should say is but we're supposed to meet our clients where they're at and this particular client really wants to lose weight so I need to help them with that and I think there's so much more to quote, meeting them where they're at, which is like the dietitian thing, then meeting them with like, well, they want to lose weight, like meet them where their motivation is, meet them where their knowledge is, meet them where their food security is and their financial ability to do these things is it doesn't need to be like, well, they want to lose weight. So I'm going to help them because like, I don't ethically think I can ever sell weight loss to anybody, partly because I don't know how to do it. Like that's, it's not a thing. And it's such a common argument that I hear and it really like riles me up a lot. And the other like hashtag problem I see a lot on Instagram is, or social media in general, I guess is intentional weight loss is not diet culture. Like I've seen that lately. It's making me wild. It's, it's so just missing the point because diet culture is still diet culture. Like you can pursue weight loss. Like I'm all for body autonomy. And so is every other health provider or Hayes health provider where we all very firmly believe in body autonomy. You get to choose what to do with your body. And for some people who are marginalized, particularly very marginalized folks, weight loss or intentional weight loss, pursuing weight loss is a way to help protect one of those marginalizations. Like you get to choose what level of marginalization you want to to engage in and sometimes like openly flouting diet culture and being like, yeah, fuck off. I'm not going to try to lose weight anymore is not safe. And that's okay. Like that is not something that I can tell you not to do, but saying that it's not diet culture that makes you do that is the problem because it's diet culture that tells you that 
you have to lose weight that marginalizes you for that weight and, or for that way of eating or whatever it is. And I just like really feel passionate about like, no, it's all diet culture. Like it's all diet culture and we can't like blur those lines. No, exactly. I think that's so well said and such an important point too, that it's all diet culture that stigmatizes people for their weight and how they eat. And that's why we have these stigmas. That's why we have this oppression that we have and why people feel the need to shrink their bodies and feel the need to change how they eat to be quote unquote cleaner or whatever, right? Healthier. And that's, that's, you can't, we can't change what the roots of that are. If that's the only solution that you feel is within your power right now, because you are so marginalized and stigmatized that being firmly anti-diet and vocally anti-diet is unsafe or puts you at risk of further, you know, fat phobia and stigma or marginalization of other identities as well, then like, I understand that. And I still want to bring down the oppressive forces that force you to feel like that's your only choice, you know, and it's not, it's not your fault. Like if you're doing, if you're dieting and trying to change your body or change how you eat in order to escape weight stigma or, or in order to escape any other sort of stigma, I get it. And nobody should have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that is not an individual problem. That is this grand social problem, which is why this advocacy work is so important. That's the kind of work that I can't do on an individual level. Like I can give you the information about why it's not true, but if you feel unsafe, not feeling like you can fit on an airplane seat or feels unsafe for you to ask for an extender or buy two seats, or if you don't feel safe, like I'm thinking of like Roxanne Gay, if you feel like you are being publicly attacked, then you get to choose, like you get to, to, to decide to engage with that. I can't tell you not to, but I can start to go upstream. Like you said, with that quote, like I can start to see and start to work on the grand social issues that are making that so necessary for you. Well, Amy, this is all such great information. I could talk to you forever and would love to just know more about your work and what you've got coming up and where people can find you and stuff. Yeah. So I, um, you can find me at, so, oh, let me start with my private practice. I have a private practice. Um, my private practice is called Prosper Nutrition and Wellness. Um, I'm in Bellingham, Washington, but I do some online, I'm dabbling in telehealth. So online sessions, I have an online course coming out soon. Hopefully there's not a lot of information about it yet, but if you come follow me, you'll start to learn some more information about it. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Amy, A-M-E-E underscore R-D. That's where I am mostly. I'm also on Medium. I have a blog that's Prosper with Amy. And I write articles occasionally for Healthline or Greatest. Those are my two main places I publish. But yeah, if you come follow me, I have some cool stuff in the works and some stuff I can't talk about yet, but I'm really excited about. And really, really excited to share this work because it's just so, there's so much to it. And I feel like I could talk about it forever. Oh my God, same. And I love the work that you do. I love your social media and your writing and everybody should definitely go follow you. I think you're doing great work in the world. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. 
So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Amy Severson for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical guidance to help you get started on your own anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it to help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message. Just go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to find all the places where you can subscribe and share. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and which I always very much appreciate. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, you can go to christyharrison.com slash 209. That's christyharrison.com slash 209. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address where it says get the transcript. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the theme song you're hearing behind me now was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.